Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon and music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt. I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it. And sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it, that this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the album, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bob the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is John Schlesinger's 1969 film, a Best Picture winner, uh, Midnight Cowboy, which despite the fact that it's about a guy with a cowboy hat in New York, uh, should not be confused with the naked cowboy, who is a different person. Mm entirely um have you seen this one saw it once a while back as like a this is one you should see kind of thing so i don't really have particular memories of it or certainly any real connection to it but it, it kind of fit into that like this is a big one and seems like an important thing in in american film history so it was kind of in that like not totally invested context anyway yeah i i feel like a lot of people come to it with that with that particular um state of mind and i also think the the trivia factoid about how this is the only best picture winner to be x-rated um i mean you can not to like just say that's a sign of the times but it is a sign of the times like you can go on to you can go on to basic cable at the right hour and get stuff that is about as raunchy as what happens in midnight cowboy um but it's a it's a movie which i think is sold as being one of the important films in american history it has the pedigree uh not only does it have the the sort of like oscar pedigree but also it has the the star pedigree early dustin hoffman early john voight uh waldo salt screenplay and of course schlesinger is a is a major figure in in direction on both sides of the pond has a john barry score and of course it's got harry nilsson all over it which 
I mean, Harry Nelson is not necessarily my jam, but the everybody's talking at me is really one of the great uses of, of pop music in, in a movie like that really does work super well. I just, I just struggle with this one a little bit because I've seen it twice now. Once when I was in high school slash college, because sort of like you, I was like, Oh, I understand this is an important motion picture. Um, not that I was saying motion picture back then because I'm more cool now than I than I was when I was a kid. But the the thing about, about it, yeah, well, <laughs> the thing about it was it just sort of bounced off me a little bit. And I think part of it is just maybe I, I wasn't old enough for the for the movie. And that's distinctly possible. And then watching it again a few weeks ago, I I just sort of. I appreciated more about it while at the same time really struggling to get into the frame of mind that would allow me to think this was a great movie. I think it's a little better than I was giving it credit for when I was 17 or 18, like go figure. But at the same time, I just really, I just really can't get to, is this a great movie no like i don't i don't quite understand what would make it a great movie it's sort of the height of dustin hoffman doing doing a bit uh there's there's the dustin hoffman who shows up and is is an actor and you get that in tootsie for example and then there's the version of dustin hoffman who's doing a bit and that's rain man and this movie is a lot more like rain man than it is like tootsie uh, and I don't think that John Voight playing this this good natured hick with the same name as one of our favorite sports broadcasters um, really <laughs> has it in him to stand up to the to the intensity of the bit. This is more of a Hoffman bit than Rain Man is. I think that Ratso Rizzo with that tiny little voice and the stoop and the 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 limp and everything i just i just can't get into it at all it is so much acting it's just a ludicrous amount of acting it's so much acting that they would have given him an oscar for it now as opposed to just nominating him back then um of course neither he nor nor void won that year yeah no like i that makes perfect sense to me. I'm just kind of not stuck, but interested in the like, if you say, okay, name Hoffman doing his bit thing. Like Rain Man, surely the first answer, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, Rain Man yeah. is number one. Um, but like to be to be perfectly real, this is almost as insuperable as the Rain Man bit. Mm. Um, the Ratso Rizzo stuff is is just so overwhelming and I don't know that the movie does a great job of setting up either one of them as especially loathsome. And I don't mm. think the movie makes either one of them all that sympathetic. And if if they're neither one of those things, then what are they? And if they're just normal people who happen to have slightly more interesting experiences than other people, then I'm not really sure where the movie is trying to take us. Uh, I, I sort of struggle with this again. There are, there are moments about it that I think are pretty good. Um, 
ironically, the parts about it that are best are not the ones that take place in New York. It's the stuff that takes place in Texas and and en route to Florida. Uh, those to me are like the funniest, weirdest and, and saddest parts of the movie, um, more so than anything that's going on in New York where they're doing Andy Warhol spoofs or John Boyd can or can't be a good hustler. He can't get hard at the right time or he ends up paying a woman he was trying to hustle in one of his first scenes like there's there's just a lot about this that if I were if I were there maybe it would have it would have really done something for me and maybe this is one of those movies that it's hard to it's hard to appreciate um without having been there in the moment and seeing it as like a new thing but even even in terms of the chronology of people making movies, I sort of struggle to find where this is new, uh, either in Schlesinger's work or in the work of other people who were making movies in the 50s and 60s. So that's my that's my vague pan of this movie, which, again, I, I don't think is bad necessarily. I just don't think it's interesting. And for a movie which is doing a lot of work to try to be interesting, whether it's in its premise or in its cinematography or in its use of Harry Nilsson, um, there's there's just a, a missing interest in this thing that I never see it overcoming. So, well, question to that point. But first, when you said en route to Florida, that was the most Jersey you've ever sounded. Um, I actually didn't even say Florida. I usually say Florida. I think I said Florida. No, you said it the Jersey way. <laughs> Did I? Good for yeah, me. Yeah. Good for me. Okay. Um, I, I I probably just said it the Pennsylvania way, but no, you're. <laughs> it was there. <laughs> it was great. It was almost Jewish. Um, uh, more to the point of the movie. Um, I, you're the one who's deep into the list, so I was going to ask you this because uh, just anecdotally to me, this seems like one that like ends up on these things but I don't know that I've ever seen anyone with a particular like passion for midnight cowboy. Like, I don't, I guess it feels kind of perfunctory. I don't know if that seems to be the case to you on like these lists of important movies, but just anecdotally, that's kind of how it feels to me. You know, kind of to your point that it's like just not that interesting. Um, my other question was kind of like, is it in that camp of movies that just like, I don't you can't take them out of the late 60s like they just don't mean the same thing as they I mean right that's true of any text that like it's of its moment in some ways but like you know we've talked about this number other episodes I think but is it one that's just like so so important to that moment and you just can't get it back in some way so I think the word perfunctory is kind of perfect for what we're talking about right now. We're sort of in a stretch on the list where um, from it happened. No, actually a little higher even. So from Streetcar Named Desire through mm. now. So for those of us who have not stared at this list as many times as I have, that's um, Streetcar Named Desire. It happened one night. Shane, Philadelphia Story, Midnight Cowboy. Um, and you can you might even put the next few on here, which are Bonnie and Clyde, King Kong and The Sound of Music. There's a there's sort of a perfunctory character to this part of the list where there are not 
there are not that many people who I think of as being especially passionate about most of these movies. And I, I, I would hesitate to, to say that there's not passion for Bonnie and Clyde and what that means historically, a movie which really does feel like a trendsetter or King Kong, which I mean, King Kong might have the most passion of any of these. I I, I think it absolutely has the most passion. And, and to be perfectly honest, I think it deserves the most passion. uh, I am of that group. (laughs) Exactly. And, and the sound of music has a, I, I think is not a great movie, but which, at least has been truly beloved for many generations at this point. Like really a, a true a true classic in in the both good and bad context of that word. Um, I think I think it's very easy for people to to love the sound of music. I don't know I just don't know where the love for Midnight Cowboy is coming from, especially because it does feel like a watered down version of stuff that was being done better in in Europe. What was your second question again? Oh, I just want to like, <clears throat> I mean, I think the, the concise version of the question is if, is if this is just like one of those late sixties boomer movies that like exists in that space is an important <clears throat> is important in that space. And outside of that, like it's just really hard to bring it forward in ways that other older you know, texts can be brought forward in new ways. I think, I think, yes, uh, there's, there's some of it, which is definitely boomer text. And I also think it's in a really weird spot historically, because not only is it a boomer text, but it's also a boomer text, which is early as opposed to being one of those seventies movies that people, will fall all over just because they're 70s movies and and of course there are so many of them that are also like you know good but there's there's a problem with this in the graduate i think two movies Mm -hmm. which are obviously of that late 60s moment as much as uh for example guess who's coming to dinner is part of that late 60s moment and it's not necessarily complimentary for any of them, even though I think there is still much more, much more excitement about Guess Who's Coming, or I'm sorry, about Midnight Cowboy and The Graduate as opposed to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, even though all of them feel sort of hopelessly stuck in late 60s vibes to me. Uh, ironically, one of the best movies of the late late 60s and one that has persevered is 2001 A Space Odyssey Mm. because there's nothing about that that's trying to be the late 60s. It's not trying to speak to a now kind of thing. And all of these movies of the the late 60s that the AFI list in, in any event, which is, again, a sort of boomer mentality as it is, so many of those 60s movies are trying to speak to a particular conscience or a particular feeling and and there are so many i don't know we talked about 69 and and how that was like one of the fullest years on the afi list which i had kind of forgotten about or rather excised from my memory because it made me sad um but easy rider such a 60s movie butch cassidy and the sundance kids such a late 60s movie midnight cowboy such a late 60s movie 
And the only one of the ones on here that doesn't feel like it's stuck in the late 60s is the Wild Bunch, which, of course, is also the best of those by a by a country mile and then some. So it's it's interesting. It's interesting that they went for those movies, which do feel very much of the time and which are trying to represent something of the time whether that representation is this is counterculture in 1969 or this is the the plight of the urban poor uh the the urban hopeless in in 1969 or this is what it's like to see the two biggest movie stars on screen together yucking it up and and having a good time in 1969 so that's like to me that's that's sort of where we're stuck with this movie which is doing some interesting work and we'll talk about that. I've sort of, I've sort of hinted at the, the European overtones of this thing a little bit. Um, but yeah, it just not, not a movie that's ever done all that much for me and which neither viewing has really convinced me that I need to go back and check on it anytime soon so maybe in 10 years because it really did take 10 to 12 years for me to to revisit this maybe when i'm in my mid 40s i will get back to this but it just isn't going to call me until then the graduate was the other one i was thinking of when i asked that question and i don't think either one of us would have a problem with this if we just say maybe dustin hoffman is the problem it's possible you know, it might it might be partly that it's Dustin Hoffman. And I think and this this might be a good transition into the actual theme of the episode. But I think that there's something about the directors, too, who I don't I don't necessarily think of Mike Nichols or of John Schlesinger as being primarily about visuals. They're both very wordy directors to me that their films, when they work, it's because of something wordy primarily. And when they don't work it's because they can't make the visual live up to the words that they're using. And when you have a, a movie like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, everything comes together and there's a, there's a brilliance to that, that I admire, but I have, I've been, I've been putting off the graduate almost as long as I've been putting off midnight cowboy. And the further we go down this list, the closer I get <laughs> to having to, to revisit uh, that particular benighted boomer movie. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about with like the plot or anything in Midnight Cowboy, or should we should we start hitting theme here? Um, <clears throat> this is not a problem of the movie itself, but it's kind of a problem that anytime I hear John Voight now, I think of his car in Seinfeld and that probably doesn't help the movie anymore either <laughs> or the the Seinfeld spoof of the bus yeah <laughs> which doesn't help with the with the movie anymore either I kind of wish I had just watched more Seinfeld instead of rewatching Midnight Cowboy I could have fit like four episodes in there I tell you to keep watching it more <laughs> Maybe we're like five or six. They're not that long. Anyway, no. the theme for for this episode has to do with imported directors, imported styles uh, and America, the melting pot. More more importantly, America is the place with Hollywood and the place where all of the money to make big movies goes. So eventually sort of the way that 
your best prospects in Europe and Australia eventually come to the NBA or your best players from across the world usually end up in England for soccer. Uh, there is something of that uh, for directors or screenwriters or actors or, or what have you. Uh, as as many of them end up in America at least once. And John Schlesinger, who had become one of the major British directors of the time, came to America for this, his first uh, American film. And of course it has, <laughs> now, this makes it sound like I'm criticizing him, but it has three of the four states that foreigners recognize as being states. <laughs> They're only missing California, uh, which is sort of perfect in its in its own way. I was going to do I was going to start with a little bit of a a discussion about Schlesinger because I actually think he's one of the more interesting British directors of his era. Uh is this is this a topic that you know stuff about or would a would a brief intro be helpful? I would love a brief intro. Okay, so Schlesinger is is fairly omnivorous as far as British directors of the period go. Uh, he's really he's really good at absorbing stuff from the culture around him, and really good at absorbing things that other directors are maybe trying to keep out or maybe not as interested in focusing on. Uh, so for one thing, he was he was out from the late '60s on. So one of the one of the very rare directors who could be openly gay um, during the midst of their movie making careers. Like for example, George Cukor never really got to come out for obvious reasons having to do with prejudice. Uh, but Schlesinger was out and he is someone who you'll see his work often tends to get into LGBTQ themes or, or characters like that. Uh, he's very good with actors. So he, even before he came to America, Julie Christie uh, won Best Actress for Darling, which is a, a Schlesinger movie. I hate saying his last name, incidentally. There's so much in it, and I really don't love it. Um, and he gets he, he has a, a way of really getting wonderful performances out of people like Julie Christie or out of people like Tom Courtenay or Peter Finch. Uh Glenda Jackson, Terrence Stamp, Alan Bates, especially like there, there's a list of great British actors that he works with. And, and in that sense, John Voight and Dustin Hoffman, who are two of the great stars of, you know, like 60s, 70s, 80s movies. Like he, he definitely has a lot of, uh, a lot of influence on them as they're performing here as well. And you can, I can take or leave the performances here. The stuff the stuff in Britain feels a little better. There is a there's a movement in British theater that seeps into British movies in the late 50s going into the early 60s, the quote unquote kitchen sink uh, in which there is a focus on realism, especially in working class urban realism. Uh, and that is one of the key one of the key signifiers of prestige and interest and quality. Uh, and it's, it's the, the underpinning of a British new wave in cinema. And if you're, for example, Tony Richardson, who directs a number of, of the kitchen sink movies, or if you're Carol Reich, or if you're Lindsay Anderson, who is not necessarily a kitchen sink director, uh, but who did make 
this sporting life, which I think of as probably the best of the movement. There, there's a different, um, there's a, there's a way of looking at the world, which is definitely more focused on being working class and being stuck and feeling like you're kind of hopeless and, and hating the world. And of course, doing it with the great British actors. So Lawrence Olivier, Lawrence Harvey, um, Albert Finney, you know, these, these people who they get, they get the, the big names. Richard Burton, I should say Richard Burton. Why did I say Lawrence Olivier? Maybe Lawrence Olivier was on the hood of a car. In any event, um, Schlesinger is interesting because his kitchen sink is much less about is much less about work and much more about romance, which I which I find kind of interesting. Not a hopelessness in terms of I'm never going to get ahead professionally, but I'm never going to get ahead with the girl I actually like, which is is part of it. Like. In your other kitchen sink movies, you so frequently have people who are stuck with a girl they got pregnant or they get stuck with a girl they don't like all that much or, or whatever. And in Schlesinger, you, you more often find this dissatisfaction with the romance itself and the job is sort of secondary. So in his first movie, A Kind of Loving... Um, which is a story about Alan Bates being this draftsman, um, a, a white collar job, like one of the one of the few white collar jobs you see in this movement. That one is all about being with a woman he wasn't really that interested in and, and being forced into marriage and everyone else telling him, look, man, you made your bed here uh, in sort of a pleasingly euphemistic fashion. And you have to you have to live up to your responsibilities, and he just really doesn't want to do it. That's something which is which is different than a lot of people are doing. Billy Liar, I think, is interesting because he's filtering this sort of kitchen sink ethos through Godard. There's a lot more hard cuts. There's a lot more imaginative stuff going on. Um, I think the best the best of his work is in Billy Liar, which is really heartfelt especially in the second half. Um, but you can even you can even find him kitchen sinking in documentary. So there's a there's an Olympic documentary called Visions of Eight for the 1972 Munich Games, which you can guess how many times they mention the whole terrorism thing, but whatever. Um, they get eight directors from around the world to each do a segment. And the, the Brit they get was John Schlesinger, who does something of a kitchen sink thing about this British guy running the marathon. And, and that's about as kitchen sinky as he gets. Most of the time, most of the time, it really is more of a sexual or a romantic opportunity thing, which is why he's so good with Far From the Madding Crowd which is a British film based on the Thomas Hardy novel and Thomas Hardy novels can be tough to adapt. <laughs> um, and, and this one I think is really beautifully done, but again, a, a sort of a story of sexual frustration more than professional frustration. In any event, Midnight Cowboy feels like a kind of response to something like a kind of loving or like Tony Richardson's look back in anger it's about this feeling that the sex is somehow inadequate, that being able to perform sexually is not everything, that it feels good to be able to do so, but it's not necessarily a guarantee of anything. And there is a 
there's a very interesting literalness in Midnight Cowboy, which gets at this idea of Joe Buck, who wants to be a hustler and he wants to sleep with the quote unquote high class women and, and, you know, live off of their money. Like he's, he's very excited about the idea, but like, there's not a lot of sex that he has and there's not a lot of proof that it's like, you know, a prodigy in bed or anything like people like him cause he's handsome and tall and young and presumably perfectly adequate uh, sexually. But there's there's nothing about him that suggests that this is going to be like a great star of the scene or anything. Uh, it's also this response to the kitchen sink idea. So again, the sort of poverty and urban life, the sort of perpetual lack of opportunity. And in that way, you can definitely see much more Tony Richardson or Carol Reich in this. There's much more Taste of Honey. There's much more Saturday night and Sunday morning. Uh, because I think... If there really if there really is like an iconic vision of the film, it has less to do with the Warhol party or with I don't know, or or some of the the women who Joe actually does end up with. It has much more to do with the vacated black apartment that he's sharing with Ratso, uh, where there's no heat, where there's like no water to speak of. It's just a complete complete like hole in the earth basically and the two of them are living there because it's free and not because it's going to prolong their lives like there's a good case to be made that living there kills rats like living there is the the primary reason why why he dies at the end of the movie and that kind of idea of not having opportunity of not being able to find opportunity the sense even that opportunity is being held from you out of a sense of spitefulness that's that's in the film as well and then in terms of fantasy this is where the warhol stuff comes in because he goes to a party he and ratso go to a party and it's very funny the different reactions they have to being invited uh because joe's reaction is to take lots of drugs some on purpose mostly not and to get zonked by the light show and film that's being screened on the wall and ratso's approach is to go to the tray of cold cuts and just steal all of them just to take all of them off the off of the tray and and hoard them for later these are the two types of party goers i understand it and in that sense of like fantasy of a fantasy world that really is like what billy liar is and i think the movie is successful when it does that less successful than the story of this creative slightly stupid english guy who is more at home in his imagination than he is living up to his family's responsibilities for him but that's when i think you see schlesinger come through most strongly and you can sort of see the movement of the kitchen sink or or schlesinger's other uh influences from his from his uh country of origin all of that's coming through here none of it translates quite as well <laughs> like as far as british movies go i'm not actually a big kitchen sink guy uh, i think the golden age of british filmmaking is almost certainly right before it or right after it which i understand most people may not think quite that way about it but for me the 
the kitchen sink thing is like a decade where they make very similar movies and some of them work and most of them are just sort of misery for their own sake. But to understand Midnight Cowboy, especially if if you're not living in the late 1960s and you don't have this vernacular as, as your own, I think you kind of have to start with what the imported director is doing, what his style was, where did he get it from, and what exactly can we see in this movie that relates to that older style. So we are going to be moving on uh, from there to talk about two other movies with two different twists, actually three, maybe different directors who are all doing um, stuff from their own style. But anything about, about Schlesinger, whose name I will try to stop saying as soon as possible or any, anything else about, about midnight cowboy. You're going <clears> to, <throat> you're going to have to say it more at the end. Um, not really. Just uh, be the guy who hoards cold cuts at the party. Um, as, as much as you rag on uh, on Ratso, I think uh, I think that that's inspired in the way to go. Honestly, I didn't relate to him more at any point in the movie, <laughs> other than when he was just taking lots of ham. Like I just thought that was extremely. Extremely relatable behavior. <laughs> Don't just torque it down. <laughs> just torque it all down. So our two <laughs> films are Taboo, A Story of the South Seas, and Once Upon a Time in America. It just occurred to me that both of these have weirdly long names. Uh, we will start with, with Taboo first, which is from 1931. Uh, it is a silent movie, and those of us with a head for movie dates will know that this postdates the start of sound cinema by a couple years and it's purposeful and pointed uh that taboo was made silent as opposed to being made with a with a dialogue track it was directed by fw murnau who we have talked about before because we have gone through sunrise which is criminally underrated on this list uh but we We've talked about Murnau before, who was imported from Germany. And in the 1920s, F.W. Murnau is, I mean, other people might put Fritz Lang here instead, but I think if the consensus isn't that Murnau was Germany's most talented director in the 20s, then it should be that. Uh, He is somebody who is just enormously influential, one of the true pioneers of the art film of using symbolism and and shadow to to really incredible effect and it's interesting because i think murnau is is almost mythic in his own way because of the limits of what we actually have from him we only have about a dozen of his movies uh which is maybe about half of the the ones that he actually finished and he also died pretty young he was killed in a car crash uh, right before Taboo was released. So this is his last movie. Um, and his his movies in Germany, everybody has heard of at least one, if if not more. Uh, but he's the guy who made Nosferatu, which is still the greatest of all vampire movies. He's the guy who made The Last Laugh, which is a tremendous, silent, tragic comedy emphasis on tragic it's it's this wonderful character study and we will talk about that more uh he's the guy who made faust so somebody who had this incredible sense 
of drama that was more than just theatrical, but understanding how to cast it in a really cinematic direction. And of course, in America, he makes Sunrise. And Sunrise may have won that first Oscar for unique and artistic picture, uh, which is not technically best picture, but kind of was. And yet that success did not speak to the studios for him. Uh, He was really, really bore down on after that. Uh, The studios kept a really close eye on him, trying to limit his budgets, limit where he was shooting, uh, because Sunrise was an expensive movie, and it wasn't a particularly successful movie. It had, like, this giant set made, and it, it it was a cost overrun. And after that, Murnau sort of felt himself being really tracked by the American studio system, which, of course, he was not in favor of, because why would you if you were F.W. Murnau? This is a guy who you can see in John Ford. Um, There are some people who will argue that Ford is at his weakest when he's trying to do Murnau, but those people are wrong. Uh, You can see him in Alfred Hitchcock. You can see him in Stanley Kubrick. You can see him in Satyajit Ray. You can see the idea of the camera or the technique itself is the spectacle. So if you watch a lot of action movies or if you watch stuff by D.W. Griffith or you watch stuff by Cecil B. DeMille or, I mean, pick your favorite, um, pick your favorite MCU movie. Those are people and, and generally speaking, what happens on screen is a greater spectacle than what the camera is doing or what the cinematographer is doing or how it's edited what is on the screen itself is meant to be the thing that you have your attention towards. But if you're, if you're watching Murnau and you love it because of what the camera is doing, or you love it because of a dissolve, or you love it because of some interesting piece of technical work, then that's going to be a Murnau influence because he was really one of the great expressionists. And I worked really hard not to say that. And then I said it anyway. Um, but he is part of this like German expressionist movement that he brings to America for sunrise makes one of the great movies of all time and immediately um, has to start fighting studio interference. So we'll talk a little bit more about other, other things that Murnau brings into it. What's interesting about this movie is that, I mean, there are so many things that are interesting about it. This is another truly great movie with a G, uh, capital G, but One of the things that's really fascinating about it from a trivia perspective is that he actually went to the South Pacific to film this thing and that a lot of the crew were people from the South Pacific who he trained how to use all the equipment. So like he was basically doing a lot of his crew uh, to say nothing of his cast. This is uh, an entirely local cast. and he is getting these local people to basically make the movie. It's it's a cast of of people from Bora Bora, I'm pretty sure. And the crew is like he's just like handing over like the mic or handing over something uh, to somebody who had lived on those islands their whole life and said, here, this is this is your job now, um, which is kind of an incredible thing to think about, especially when the when the technology less advanced than what we have now, but certainly big, heavy, and, and different from what a lot of those people were, were used to. 
part of the reason he went to the South Pacific is because Robert Flaherty was also on the project to start with. And though Robert Flaherty may not be immediately, uh, immediately recognizable for some of the folks at home, everyone has heard of Nanook of the North, which is a Robert Flaherty joint. And I just saw the, the flash of recognition. Uh, so Flaherty is the, one of the, the fathers, the, the granddaddies, whatever you want to call them of documentary filmmaking, especially in America, um, and for good or ill, that's the case because a lot of the, a lot of the documentary filmmaking uh, techniques that he uses are still extremely influential. A lot of the the focus on a place that's far away from the intended audience. Uh, so aside from, aside from going to the Arctic, he also has um, one about this remote British island um, called Man of Iran, which is a very good one. Uh, he makes a, a South Pacific movie called Moana, if you've ever wondered where that particular title came from. Uh, so there are there are like footprints of, of Flaherty all the way through. The, the thing about Flaherty, which people didn't recognize back then, but which everyone knows now, is that it was all like so fake. Like all of the stuff that he shot was totally staged. Um, Nanook of the North is one of the great examples because... Basically, all of that was was just staged. One of the people he's trying to pass off as Nanook's wife is actually his wife. Like, there's lots of stuff like that where Flaherty is just completely pulling things out of his butt and and turning it into, I don't know, the most influential documentary of all time. So I guess good for his butt. Flaherty and, and Murnau were working on this together. And you can tell that both of them are very much in on the storytelling the forgive me for saying it like this but this is how they would have seen it the exotic setting um the 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 emphatically not hollywood setting or non-european setting is is maybe a more accurate way to put it that's flaherty and that sense of a world outside what any normal schmo seeing this in the states is ever going to see let alone imagine like this is unimaginable stuff for your average person in the cinemas in new york in california like this is totally new that's a flaherty thing but the deep sympathy of the film the humanism of the film and the beauty of the film is all murnau and part of the reason it's all murnau is because flaherty and murnau fought and flaherty bailed on it so that's one of the reasons why this is not double credited as as a directorial thing is because Flaherty did some work on one of the one of the sh uh, scenes which has some pearl diving in it is a Flaherty thing. And Flaherty is also involved in like the original writing of it, but he doesn't stick around forever because he and Murnau do not see eye to eye. The film is much more sympathetic than Nanook of the North is. To, to say the least uh the story is pretty simple it's about it's about a boy and a girl um a, a polynesian boy and a polynesian girl um who are in love and they want to be together and it's it's very sweet and they are very sweet together um Murnau really emphasizes the boy's adventurousness really uh, emphasizes the girl's 
kindness and her beauty and like they're it they're very idyllic it's it's a mythic kind of of couple um easily recognizable for anyone who is watching this is like the people who you root for in the movies and there is a ceremony that's performed to make her um because she's vaguely royal or noble in in the cultural um the cultural milieu she belongs to she is supposed to be essentially sacrificed to a god like she is a maiden and she's supposed to be sacrificed to the god for you know such arcane purposes and for that reason no one can speak to her anymore especially not young men like the boy who would like to speak to her and maybe do some other things in you know wholesome loving fashion and the two of them decide to run off together and for a while they manage to make it but the world just sort of circles around them they're tracked down they're hunted down uh, and eventually at the end of the film the the girl is recovered and the boy tries to swim after her is in fact swimming faster than any person has ever swum because he's like catching up to a boat and as he's like about to reach it um he grabs onto this rope and in the middle of the screen there's this incredible shot where a knife just comes down and slashes that rope and the boy it loses his grip the girl is taken away from him and and he drowns and you compare this to Murnau's other work, and so much of it has, if not an outright happy ending, at least kind of a bittersweet ending. So Nosferatu doesn't have a happy ending precisely, but it does have a hopeful one. Uh, Sunrise, we've talked about, a film which has an extremely hopeful ending. Like, it, it is the epitome of a, of a happy ending where the married couple is, is brought back together. Um, and then... This one, it kind of, it's so different because it actively chooses against the happy ending. So the film that I think it's kind of most like out of the earlier Murnau movies is The Last Laugh, um, which is from 1924, stars Emil Jannings as a hotel doorman who is very proud and and very... Uh, mustached and and very highly costumed and, and extremely excited about being that guy but he's starting to age and management moves him to be a bathroom attendant instead and it breaks him like it just totally breaks him and Murnau has this thread in his films about the world makes you who you are what you are part of is going to dictate what you become which I don't know if we want to call that a Marxist idea exactly. I don't really know what Murnau's politics are, uh, but it's it's an idea that is very, very strong in his movies, and it's not stronger anywhere, I think, than in The Last Laugh, at least not until Taboo, um, two films which are emphatically about you are what other people see you as, and you can try to escape it, and you can try to put it off, and you can try to put a brave face on it, but there's nothing you can do if everyone else has decided whether it's your employer or your community or or both if, if everyone else has decided that you are what they want you to be then you really can either live like that or you can die 
and the last laugh has a very silly twist in which he like wins a giant inheritance and ends up having this happy ending which is nice because otherwise i think the movie would be too sad to watch um even if it doesn't necessarily make for the most logical sequence and in taboo that happy ending is is completely gotten away with uh it is something where you can see that idea from murnau and it's shot in all of the ways that murnau would have shot it i really think this is it's very possibly his most beautiful movie and that's really saying something for a guy with his resume but it's also one in which there is just more darkness in in the end there's there's more of a sense of a fate that is inescapable uh which which is attractive in its own way but that's something that he only found once he went to hollywood which i find kind of interesting anything that you need clarified or want to say about about taboo i assumed this was not one that you had gotten to before no it's not um though oddly i didn't even know this uh i just this is to the listeners um i just read a chapter in a book that is ostensibly about something Murnau did uh and sent it to tim without realizing that we were talking about Murnau this week wait really i I thought you knew that no i was just reading in that book and that yeah that's just a happy coincidence that's wild yeah um um i was trying to look into Murnau's uh potential relationship to marx Mm -hmm. um he studied philology and and literature so i'm sure he is familiar um i don't i can't find any quick indication of uh what he may or may not have been into but i do want to say um and i think this kind of speaks to the right you are born into and live with the conditions that you do um he joined the the german flying corps and in two years of missions uh survived eight crashes without any severe injury <laughs> and then died to, in a car crash yeah only to be killed in a, in a car wreck yeah i'm and it, it's it's interesting this is such a him movie and it it still feels like a flaherty movie too um because flaherty isn't trying to suggest in his documentaries that these people you know are all such individuals like a lot of it is like trying to be slice of life i mean slice of life insofar as anything that spectacular can be a slice of life thing but he's trying to say for for people who live in these other places this is the the wonderful and fascinating world that they live in and they also take for granted there's something of that in taboo as well this idea of I mean, there's a there's an extended sequence towards the beginning of the movie that's just like a, a dance that these people are doing. Like there's a, an extended dance and it's it's cool. Like it's a it's a cool thing. Um, and you also get a sense of the the French government, because at the time, this sort of like Polynesian area was still run by the French. And I mean, for all I know, parts of where they might have filmed are still run by the French. So like there's a there's a definite there's a definite sense of the movie from both sides both from your expressionist emotional side but also from your 
pseudo realistic side of of a control that is greater than anything you can exert which which comes down on the on the film so something i find interesting in this episode already um i won't announce your second film yet but just that right you're talking about imported stuff two of them take place in the united states in new york particularly and like seem to be telling us something about america too but this one is right has hollywood backing but he's just in in the polynesian islands um telling us something about there right? not that these things aren't infinitely relatable but um i don't know i'm curious maybe this will be more for after talk of the second film but i'm just i'm intrigued by that the 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 factor of importing and then Murnau is importing something else to us anyway. Yeah, I find that I think that's actually worth discussing now if the cat will not run into this microphone too much. Oh, um, he will. He will. Come here, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I know. But that's that's something that's something I think is interesting within the within the way that the films are made, because there is a sort of a mythic archetypal quality to to this movie but also to sunrise which is supposed to be set in europe i think Uh, and i think viewers would have been able to see that it was set in europe but there's nothing about it oh kitty there's nothing about it that says that it has to be european like for some people who are living in I don't know, like Michigan or Ohio, like that could be Michigan and Ohio farmland. And then it just happens to turn into, I don't know, Detroit or something like those are both movies that have man, woman or man, wife or boy, girl. And it's a common thing in your silent movies to not actually name the people, but to just kind of give them these these big picture names. But I do think it's interesting that where Flaherty would exoticize the the people of Bora Bora the the thing that Murnau is trying to do has more to more to do with them as people and more to do with them as as people with these recognizable feelings and desires but who culturally speaking are split by it um and we'll and you're right we will talk more this cat uh we will we will talk more about this idea of americans uh as experienced by foreigners uh in a second but that is that is something that i think murnau is maybe doing a little bit less of he's much more universal in his in his thinking Mm -hmm. katie would like to announce his opinions on i don't know if he has opinions on bora bora or or on uh murnau he is not seen two of these three movies he was with me for midnight cowboy but he didn't watch the other two with me so i'm sure he popped for the cold cuts i mean if he had (laughs) known that the cold cuts were there he would have gone through the screen and tried to murder dustin Mm. hoffman to make sure he got a slice of baloney so speaking of murder the other film we have here is once upon a time in america (laughs) uh, which is a sergio leone movie from 1984 Uh, sergio leone is I mean, not like Murnau isn't one of the most famous directors of all time, but I think Leone, because of the Dollars trilogy, because of the good, the bad, and the ugly, because of Once Upon a Time in the West, and most of all, because of Quentin Tarantino, uh, continues to be name-dropped and remembered in in American cinema. 
And I say that and it sounds like I'm trying to denigrate the guy when the opposite is true. I think Leone is one of the great filmmakers like like Murnau, not a huge list of movies to his credit. Uh, and part of that, he took a long time to do stuff and he had such an epic scope and he had he was really uh, in this sort of. I guess at the time it was really it was really meaningful for European directors to try to one up each other in terms of what kind of long movie they could make. Uh, so Once Upon a Time in America has a reputation as being a film that got cut to shreds in order to make it something that would be under two and a half hours. I don't understand how the movie would even be comprehensible in under that time, but whatever the version that I have seen and the version that you would get on, on DVD is probably going to be more like 250 ish minutes. So for those of us keeping track at home about four hours, um, but it's, it's a film which kind of fits into, into a European legacy, something that Bernardo Bertolucci is doing with 1900 a few years earlier. And 1900 is one of the reasons why, the studio is like, no way, man, you are not coming in here with your six hour movie and passing that off to to audiences because we just watched 1900 bomb uh, and, and they didn't want to have that happen again. But this is a, a movie which is very much in the Leone tradition. For one thing, it's got Ennio Morricone doing the score. This is one of the great Morricone scores most scores are some of the great Morricone scores, but this one is really incredibly done. Uh, he uses panpipe in this one, uh, which is used well more often than not in movies. It's the kind of thing that you don't put in there unless you know what you're doing, in my experience. Uh, but there is this haunting uh, panpipe solo that they return to uh it's got a great theme on its own. Like it's a really, really gorgeous score. And it's a, a movie which is produced by Italians, that's shot by Italians, um, cut by an Italian. So like this, in a, in a way, I mean, taboo is kind of a, kind of a Bora Bora America co-production. This one is definitely like an Italy America co-production. The things that make Leone Leone, um, in his spaghetti westerns and just as an aside i am in favor of just using spaghetti as a synonym for italian wherever possible so like for example when you watch the world cup you could just point to the guys in the blue jerseys and say ah yes the spaghetti football team um maybe we should just be doing that but that's his spaghetti westerns are famous for having extremes uh extremes of violence extremes of fake blood extremes of slow motion extremes of explosions extremes of close-ups extremes of wide shots um he likes his huge vistas without obvious focal points uh he likes close-ups which make you feel like you're in that magic school bus episode where they go inside ralphie's body uh, because you are so tight to these people. You can just see every single pore. Uh, he loves his blood and guts. He loves the way that gunfire makes that shrieking noise that it only makes in in these uh, spaghetti westerns. You guys know the one. <laughs> it's like that's a very Leone thing to do. Um, 
and and I think he's someone who is really fascinated by brutality. And most of your spaghetti Western guys are like that. And if I were to choose someone who I think is actually more interesting in his use of brutality, it would be Sergio Corbucci, who is probably probably more blunt and more more frightening in the way that he uses brutality. Uh, Leone manages to use it in a way that is fairly Hollywood, even in in Italy. Um, his brutality is you know, pretty bloody and there's some fairly gross stuff that happens. Uh, but it's, but it's very stage play. It's very, uh, very, let's pull out a bladder and puncture that in your Shakespearean production. Uh, there's something of that DIY old school (laughs) gushing blood thing that he just really likes. And it's something which you can see in people like Tarantino. Like there's a reason why, Tarantino is making these movies in the past 15 years is because he's trying to do Leone stuff uh, down to the titles. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is it's not called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because he really likes Turkish movies like Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. It's because of it's because of Leone. Um, And he is he is interested. Leone is in, in this sort of mythic idea as well, where where Murnau would be doing something more archetypal. Um, Leone's more interested in this idea of America is this weird, violent country. What's the deal with that exactly? Why are these people so weird and so violent? And how do those two things bleed into each other? So if you're watching something like... I don't know, one of the first two movies in your Dollars trilogy, the first of which is already stolen from Kurosawa anyway. Uh, you can you can see him trying to get into what makes this one American wandering around, what makes him more effective in his violence? How does his stoicism feed into his effectiveness as opposed to these people who are a little bit wilder and, and crazier and, and how are they defeated by him, even if they seem more fearsome for that reason? Um, Leone, I assume we have more more personal familiarity than than Murnau. So, anything that you would like to add, or anything I missed about the guy that we should mention? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think Leone is certainly more popular here than Murnau, at least as a name. Um, but I also think more people would just know Spaghetti Western as a thing than they would like automatically have a picture of Sergio Leone in their in their head, um, either literally or metaphorically in terms of like his like what he's usually up to or like like his things, so to speak. Um, but I mean, his his movies are certainly widely seen here, I think, still so. Um, yeah, I, th- I think there's just a more innate knowledge of him here, and for anyone listening, probably though, I don't know how many people like talk about Sergio Leone that much anymore. It's kind of it, like it's an interesting distinction there. I don't think I've framed it the best way, but just like his movies, definitely known, and like there's name recognition, but I don't know that people are like, oh yeah, Sergio Leone that much. It's interesting because there really are only so many movies of his to go back to. Um, but like again, all of them are, all of them like, are bangers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
which which is one of the things that makes him makes him so special is that he really doesn't have like misses on his resume even the minor stuff is still really good um and i think part of the reason why leone is still pretty popular is because there are a number of actors he uses who are bigger names for regular people now so just to take murnau as an example it's not like Emil Yannings or Janet Gaynor or George O'Brien weren't huge names in their time, but people don't think about those people now. Um, whereas you take you take Leone, and that's Clint Eastwood, that's Eli Wallach, that's Henry Fonda, that's Jason Robards. In this movie, that's Robert De Niro, that's James Woods, and and you get people who are just instantly recognizable people who we sort of. Um, we sort of uh, recognize right away, even that's baby Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> you know? mm. Like there are people in here who I think have just from a personal perspective, makes it easier for us to, to get them. It's amazing how much goodwill James Wood squandered. Um, also, here's a question for you. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah. One you'll probably like in your estimation, which Leone movies could count as american this one just this one this one okay i was was curious if the other once upon a time might but no i've I've thought about it before um actually that was one of the things i was trying to think about back in like 2017 when i was writing that thing but i i decided once upon a time in america or, or in the west is is too italian this one i even thought about is this too italian for me to actually do it for subtitles mm-hmm. and obviously my answer was it's american enough um but even this one is, is sort of on thin ice as far as that kind of thing goes the did i just misremember is the good the bad and the ugly not on the the afi list yeah i think even those people understand that's italian okay. that's how okay. italian it is is yeah. that even they understand that it's italian I'm impressed by their restraint there. <laughs> I know it's kind of it's kind of incredible. Some people do not restrain themselves in quite that in quite that way. Uh, but Once Upon a Time in America, I do think is adequately American. Part of it is that it's set in in a recognizable Brooklyn. It's being shot on, um, you know, you get this the shot of the Brooklyn Bridge in ways that are uh, that are much more recognizable. There are shots of New York that are recognizable. They're trying to. They're trying to set this up as American as opposed to just sort of pretending the Southwest of America and Spain are the same thing, which is, you know, funny in its own way. That will always be funny. I was just poking through his the Wikipedia real quick just to see their uh, like the quick distribution and production credits. Um, I will say if this makes you feel any better once upon a time in America, I think is the only one that lists the U S distributor first. Mm, that's, that's not nothing. That's not nothing. All right. So this actual, this actual movie is also kind of interesting because it's about gangsters. And I think it gets lumped in to other gangster movies that are roughly contemporaneous with it. Which have you seen once upon a time in America offhand? Would you guess that it's more like the Godfather or more like Scarface? 
Um, in what sense? The way it looks, the way it presents violence. Uh, given Leone, Scarface. Which is interesting. It's also closer to Scarface in terms of years, because Scarface, weirdly enough, predates Once Upon a Time in America, which I think is such a weird thought. It's like, it's like a four-year difference or something, isn't it? It's a one-year difference. Oh, like it's Scarface, Yeah, Scarface comes out in 83, and this one comes out in 84. And now, this one was shot before Scarface, because they fought production forever about it. But, like, it's very interesting to me that this one is so close to Scarface, but in terms of the prestige aspect and the cinematography, so much more of it really is like The Godfather. And what's interesting about The Godfather and Godfather Part 2 is that neither one of them is a particularly bloody movie, which, I mean, you can tell me if you disagree with me about that or not. No, I don't. It wasn't that. Sorry. It was the reason I asked in what way it was like, I haven't seen this one, but it is one that I know of in certain ways. And my impression has been that like structurally or even narratively, maybe it's more of a Godfather, but visually I'm just assuming a Scarface type deal. I think structurally it's like Godfather 2. Visually it's like, it's more like the Godfather than Godfather part two. There's, there's maybe there's a couple things that I think about Scarface as having some kind of similarity with it, Hmm. but it's, it's interesting that there is this old world Italian sensibility brought to Jewish New York. Uh, This is not a story about Italian gangsters or Cuban gangsters. It's a story about Jewish gangsters, uh, homegrown people. So there's, which is, which is in its own way kind of interesting because the kids are not immigrants. The kids were born in America. Um, it's their parents who are immigrants or their grandparents, but it's not like it's not like the Godfather where Vito himself is originally from Italy. And it's not like Scarface where Al Pacino is Cuban. Um, <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's it's what Al Pacino of, is from Al Pacino world. <laughs> Al, he's he's from his own planet. Love uh, that man. What a what a fascinating dude. <laughs> the the thing. <laughs> sorry, I'm just thinking. Just think about Al Pacino, who fits so beautifully into so many of the things that we were doing. Like there's that the urban poverty thing, like Panic mm-hmm. and Needle Park, I think it's the year after after Midnight Cowboy and has the scene where he says, girl, look at that rat. <laughs> I was hoping you too, you like I were also imagining um, him talking like Jimmy Hoffa, which is yeah something i return to if not daily nearly (laughs) solidarity (laughs) the little dance oh my god al pacino is a treasure i feel bad that there's not more al pacino in this episode i feel bad that there's not more al pacino on this list (laughs) oh yeah we have to get to him later uh so the film itself I think is speaking more to the the kind of tradition that Francis Ford Coppola was making stuff in, but it's doing the violence in a way that's very Leone. And of course, Brian De Palma is going to be much more influenced by a Leone than he would be by Coppola, who is not literally one of his peers, but like for all intents and purposes, like De Palma, Spielberg, Lucas Scorsese, like guys who are in, who are like little brothers for Coppola as opposed to being like a different generation from them altogether. 
So there's there's this aspect of it, which I think is very interesting, where you get the prestige and you get the the setup, which is like the Godfather in that you have people who are thrust into a criminal underworld who sort of come to welcome it, that there's a difference between there's a difference between um, what they do in this movie and how it is in the Godfather. But like at a certain point in the Godfather, Michael decides he is going to be part of that criminal underworld. And that shifts from a personal experience and the kids in the first third of this movie or so are not necessarily trying to be in the criminal underworld at the start so much as they are just hellraisers and you know they're living in in early 1900s new york and they don't have a lot of money and they don't have a lot to go on and mostly they just like to screw around uh and and experiment in the way that teenage boys are are want to do that that turns into the four i should say five really because that's important that the five guys in this who range from mid-teenage years down to like child uh put together put together a gang to do some odd jobs here and there and then eventually uh get taken out by a a rival gang leader who is barely older than them that's something that the film lingers on and it's in that violence that we see that we start getting the transition the violence in the early 1900s is not that dissimilar from the violence in the godfather it's the violence later in the film that starts to feel more like Leone and which starts to feel more like the kind of thing you pull for Scarface. Uh, so for example, noodles is the main character. Just going to let that one sit there for a second. Uh, David Aronson, who is played as an adult by Robert De Niro, um, but who goes by noodles for everyone. Why why did this man not do the spaghetti western trilogy of noodles? You know, it's never really occurred to me until now <laughs> that the spaghetti western guy made a four hour movie about a guy named Noodles. Um <laughs> Yikes. That's doesn't reflect well on me, does it? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> anyway. S- sorry, continue. <laughs> so he he kills uh, the rival gang leader when he's a teenager. There's this moment of triumph that he and his friends are having uh, because they just did a job together and they put together their gang and they have like a suitcase full of money they've hidden at the train station. And, you know, they're all very excited about it. I really hope the rival guy is nicknamed sauce. I forget what the rival guy is nicknamed. I feel bad about that, but there's, I'll look look that up. You, (laughs) you fam his his their rival is um someone who bugsy his name's bugsy uh. <laughs> um of course he is he event like the five of them are like walking around in their new fancy clothes and feeling like kings of the world and everything and bugsy comes out and shoots the youngest member of the gang who really is like a kid like a middle school age kid tops uh and and noodles kills bugsy 
in return and gets sent to jail. And while he's in jail for a long time, uh, his friends who are surviving manage to walk into bootlegging, basically. They are the right age to get into to the bootlegging business, and they grow up. Um, and the, the other key figure of the gang, Max, who is played as an adult by James Woods, in a terrifically slimy performance that may not have been as much performance as you would guess. Mm. Um, yeah, he's, it's a great James Woods performance. Like he is so slimy and smug and mouthy and terrible. And the man, who, who would have he, guessed? <laughs> he was good at what he did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now he's just bad at Twitter. Um, I'm also I'm looking at the cast now and you didn't tell me Estelle Harris was in this and I'm insulted (laughs) very briefly Estelle Harris is in this to continue the great Seinfelding of this podcast Um, but Noodles comes out of jail Um, he's been in love with um, Deborah this whole time Deborah as the young the young person was played by Jennifer Connelly in one of her early roles Uh, she is played as an adult by Elizabeth McGovern who you probably remember mostly from Downton Abbey, um, which is a very strange career trajectory for her. Um, But the two of them have had this sort of love-hate relationship for a long time, and she's clearly been waiting for him uh, while he was in jail. And the violence that Noodles commits as an adult, I think, is primarily visible in two scenes. One of them... Actually, both of them involve rape slash sexual assault. Um, I was going to say one of them is is part of a business deal for him, and the other one is part of a of a date. Um, so the date he goes to Atlantic City and like rents out this giant uh, giant hotel just for him and Deborah, and they dance and they eat dinner and and all of this fancy stuff. Uh, Robert De Niro in his best Robert De Niro voice quotes song of songs which is one Mm -hmm. of the great unintentional humor moments oh i don't know in in cinematic history maybe um and then deborah doesn't want to have sex with him and then in the back of the limousine that they were driving in as they're driving back to her place um he rapes her in one of the the most uncomfortable and awful like scenes like it's it's not graphic it's not a graphic scene in the way that other rape scenes in later films will be graphic but there is there is such um a brutality to that that really matches some of the brutality that you would get in once upon a time in the west or that you get in for a few dollars more and you get that same sense of, of physical brutality and complete arrogance and this need to press one's power, um, which, is, which is a very Leone idea to, to witness these people and to wonder what they're doing it for. And in this case, uh, there's, I mean, credit to Leone for making this scene something that is not at all romantic, the one that there's no, there's no sense that this was good for anyone except noodles who basically acted really badly um and then at a different point there is a like a heist that they do and there's a lot of violence in the heist there's the the close-ups again uh there's shooting and there's gang rape in that 
And that same kind of idea is coming over from the spaghetti Westerns. Like Leone is bringing that, that um, depravity with him from his, from his earlier movies. And it's the kind of thing that the Godfather wouldn't have had. It's the kind of thing that the Godfather part two wouldn't have had. They will shoot up Sonny and put lots of holes in his body and they'll show Talia Shire uh, all bruised and they'll they'll do lots of stuff, but they won't get as dark as as at least um, in representation as it happens in Once Upon a Time in America. That's something you see more in Scarface. Um, so the actual depiction of the violence and the bloodiness and the I mean, the everything that's wrong is a is a very leone idea and he's sort of been beaten to the punch in america um though i think to his credit once upon a time in america is a lot better than than scarface is i'm sort of leaving most of the plot out of this one there is a lot of plot as you would expect from a movie that's four hours long and originally was cut to be six um but i think we Hopefully the, the point comes through about the, the general idea of, of violence and, and Leone's way of shooting it in a way that depicts the beauty of the place so often or, or what's interesting or unique about the place, whether it's Brooklyn or it's rural Spain, um, but also using that to contrast the ugliness within the people that he's, that he's making the film about. I just think this one's especially interesting is because it is Leone, someone who's so imported by American directors and, and writers and people in movies. Um, I mean, sort of what you were saying there, like it seems like it came out a little too late in some ways, and, but it also presages other, other, you know, the Tarantino of it all, like, I don't know, just kind of him putting his stamp on the thing. Like everyone's going to try and do bits of this, but here is the the American Leone version, um, and that he's able to do that himself is, you know, that's nice in a way. Even if this is a film that does not sound nice, um, it's the ability to consider him in like that kind of lineage in a way that you, I don't know, it just doesn't really fit Murnau in the same way. All right. Do you want to count to five for me? I'm going to name five other movies from the same year that this one was released. Okay. The Terminator. <laughs> Amadeus. Footloose. Dune. And Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. <laughs> to say that this is an out-of-place movie is to... <laughs> I like that you said that it it really it really could not seem less like the other stuff that was in cinemas at the time it must have felt like such a fascinating throwback to to go to a movie theater and watch that thing I'm trying to figure out which one of those I think is the most similar and I don't know (laughs) I don't have a good answer to that either. I mean, for sheer scope, I guess it has to be Dune. I was going to say the Terminator, probably. Well, that was my that was my second thought is like (laughs) tonally, it's probably the Terminator. But like, 
but on the other hand it's nothing like the terminator no no, no. (laughs) yeah really it really doesn't it really doesn't go along with the rest of its time and i think i mean that's something that uh leone and murnau have in common here uh which is kind Mm -hmm. of fun because midnight cowboy as we've talked about part of the issue with it is that it's too timely it's too much like it's time and place uh and taboo of course is a aggressively silent movie being made uh, at a time when people were aggressively trying to make sound pictures and once upon a time in america feels like the kind of gangster movie that came out 10 years ago let alone the kind of um the kind of spaghetti western bloody mess that people would have mm. been trying to see in the 60s anything else to to clarify go over again with with these two or are we ready to spiel it um i'm i'm ready for spiel i'll just say it, it's interesting just thinking of it now that de niro is in godfather 2 this and so many of the scores that like just his traipsing through the different types of gangster movies we're gonna get is really interesting and the more italian the directors were the less italian they made him Mm -hmm. (laughs) just absolutely (laughs) incredible stuff all right so the original film on the afi list is midnight cowboy which is by john s uh, who is a British director uh, of some fame, who I think really, really did make a number of really fine movies in his career. Uh, but the style that he brings to it is definitely imported. He was making stuff in Britain that has much the same kind of like kitchen sink sensibility, but with a greater focus on um, sexual repression or LGBTQ ideas. And that gets through in Midnight Cowboy. So the two films that we have as options today, uh, the first one is Taboo, the story of the South Seas, which is directed by F.W. Murnau and which has a lot of early work done on uh, a lot of pre-production stuff done by Robert Flaherty, a film which combines Murnau's expressionism, the silent German expressionism that made him one of the great directors of all time, uh, along with Flaherty's interest in faraway places and that sort of documentarian aspect of it where you're supposed to be able to believe that this is possible and really could have happened, at least in 1931, even if it's obviously fiction for us in the present. And then on the other hand, we have Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America from 1984, which is a spaghetti Western, but brought to New York City. So maybe a spaghetti New Yorker or whatever the heck you call them, a spaghetti gangster movie, a film which absolutely is trafficking with the same kind of cinematography the same kind of acting style the sort i mean that's not something i talked about a lot but like james woods and robert de niro are big in this treat williams is big in this danny aiello is big in this and like that same kind of bigness is in eli wallach or it's in jason robards or henry fonda like he's he's getting these giant size performances in giant size close-ups with giant sized blood spatters and that's kind of that's kind of uh the leone promise and that spaghetti western aspect definitely makes it over uh to to america for once upon a time there where are you going i have no idea where you're going i'm interested to hear i honestly have no idea either this one is i don't know like it's not difficult and like uh like a, a way that kind of hurts um it, it's not like emotionally difficult it's just like it feels technically difficult and they're like i don't actually know which one i'm gonna go for here 
Um, because I think both are really compelling cases. Um, and right now I'm kind of weighing, this is also not performance. I'm gen- genuinely <laughs> stalling as I talk. Um, we haven't had one of these in a while. I, I, I know, encourage I know. us to, to stump <laughs> each other every now and then. Um, so I'm, I'm working through the f- a couple things. So with Murnau, the the role of Flaherty and all that, um, and how that may affect any any importation. That's a lesser concern, but it's on my mind. Um, I, but I'm thinking about the. kind of what we said earlier like the universalism that he kind of just has um right it's rooted in that that german expressionism in that you know thoroughly him style that he has um but how that often speaks more broadly i think than um certainly something like midnight cowboy even something like once upon a time in america to some degree which I'm not saying it is, I mean, we just talked about it. It's certainly not stuck in 1984, but like it's not stuck in any particular mode, but it does feel like it is about a place uh, in um, maybe a deeper way. Um, And what I've settled myself into as I was stalling is that because this is an American list, I'm going with Once Upon a Time in America, not because of the title. I was hoping you were going to say because <laughs> of the title. <laughs> not because of the title. Um, but because, I don't know, production-wise, as much as this is like kind of liminal as an American film, um just that it's taking a crack at what you said at the beginning of like, why are these people so angry and violent? And like, let's consider, uh, you know, multiple types of not direct immigrants necessarily, but like, right. People from families who have emigrated or immigrated rather, and who are now shaping the space, right? Like America as fundamentally a country that is built in that way um right the original americans are on reservations so um i don't know i guess just taking a crack at that and because this is an american list and like importing that style and that kind of voice into this thing um i don't know if that makes total sense but that's that's the reason i'm going with it I've landed on that literally 20 seconds ago (laughs) that's not bad for 20 seconds ago i can i can see it and i think I think Once Upon a Time in America really is like a very, very special movie. Uh, it's the kind of thing, like I said, you could you could pare this thing down to two and a half hours if you really wanted to. But you would just be losing so much of the richness of the of the film. Um, and I didn't even like get to the final third or the conspiracy theory about how much of this actually happens and how much is made up in an opium den. Hmm. Uh, Like there's, Hmm. there's so much about this movie that is just 
really, really toothsome and you can really like get into it. And I, I think Taboo is like one of the great movies ever. But Once Upon a Time in America is one I'm fond of because it does it does have so many ideas and so many plot points just circulating around and these really small, gorgeous moments occasionally that mm-hmm. that I really like. I guess I like to um, write the fact that it sounds like the American uh, side of this tried to cut it down. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> I like, I like, I like De Palma. I have fondness for De Palma. Um, I'm sure this is a better film than Scarface, but I just want to say that I have fondness for De Palma, but like what you're saying about the people trying to do Leone, um, like, it's just not, I don't know. There's a degree to which it's just not the thing. So you have to import it. And like, they tried to cut the thing and still it's, it's the massive version of this. And obviously I have a fondness for any, uh, any text, but any movie, especially that's just like, no, it needs to be long. Um, like you just have to import the real thing to some degree. Yeah. If there's one thing that I, that I wish I had been able to say more about, and maybe it would have been helpful, maybe not, but there's, Leone will occasionally give you a little bit of tenderness or a little bit of like that, like personal feeling. Um, mm-hmm. And I like once upon a time in the West, like the kids in that, in that movie, give you some of that personal feeling and that connection. Um, but there's this, there's this very quick moment in the movie where Patsy, um, and this is when they're like all kids like he's heard that there's this girl in the neighborhood that if you bring her a Charlotte Russe, like this one dessert, which costs a bunch of money. Uh, if you bring her one of these desserts, then she'll like let you do stuff to her sexually. And he he's going up to he's going up to see her and her mom is like, she'll be out in a second. And he just starts looking at this Charlotte Russe, which is like all whipped cream and like a cherry on top. And he just looks at it and like sticks his finger in the whipped cream and like licks that. And then before you know it, he's just like, you know, what's better than sex dessert. And it's just like, it's, it's such a sweet moment. And there's like, it's got the Morricone music playing over it. And it's this like very human moment that I think Leone doesn't get enough credit for. Um, And of course I talked about him being bloody and rapey for, 30 minutes so i guess i'm part of the problem here but like there is there is a level of humanism which is not murnau level but there is a level of that kind of relatability and personability uh that he is able to bring whether it's through eli wallach or through jason robards or through brian bloom who i've never heard of before but who plays this kid um who manages to to make that come through all right Two movies entered, one movie left, barely. Uh, Once Upon a Time in America (laughs) by Sergio Leone uh, is the import uh, that replaces Midnight Cowboy, the Johnny S. classic. If we ever get to one where I just don't like either option and can't decide, I'm putting Taboo back in. Noted. I would not (laughs) say no. Um, I'll be embarrassed, but I won't say no. (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to part one, where we also talk about things that we like a lot, uh, as Matt discussed Slater Kinney, The Woods, and the idea that Rock is dead, Long Live Rock. Um, 
if you are interested in back episodes, if you want to find links to either one of our blogs or to either one of our social media accounts where we do playlists and lists and all sorts of other fun things. Um, am I missing one? I always miss one. Uh, blogs, playlists, reviews, stuff about us. Stuff about <laughs> us. That's me doing the brain thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you want background information about the project or or about our silliness or what have you uh, all of that is available for you on subtitlespodcast.com we'll see you next time